0: We return this morning to the book of Philippians, and I'd encourage you to uh, turn there with me. Philippians chapter two. We return this morning to Paul's letter to this ancient church uh, somewhere around uh, what is modern day or or northeast of modern day Greece, if you know uh, your European geography. Paul writes to a young church, A young church in the first century seeking to find its way, seeking to figure out what it means to follow Christ in the Roman Empire, in the world that they're living in, in a Roman culture that is steeped with practices that are opposed to what Christ says, to what the apostles have modeled and written about. Not only were they fighting this church in Philippi, these external challenges, but they were fighting with one another. There was an internal strife that Paul has hinted at that he will speak to more pointedly later in this letter, an internal strife that's pulling at the fabric of their community. And so we've reflected on the fact that the church in Philippi is not all that far removed from us from Ascension Presbyterian Church, or from any evangelical church in this day and age. And so Paul, in this first chapter, has been focusing on our identity and on our unity. Those have been some significant themes that he's been camping out on. And last week, last week, for those of you who are here or listening in, we were on the mountaintop. Remember the mountaintop, this wonderful hymn of Christ, this portrait of Christ's humiliation that Paul paints for us in verses five through 11, a portrait that begins before time begins and that ends after time itself ends. In reality, that wouldn't have been a good place to just end the letter. He could have just said, "Amen. To him be the glory and honor." And be done with it. But he's not done. He moves on to where we find ourselves today. He moves on from that portrait of Jesus' life to what ought to be the portrait that others paint of our lives. I think that's a good way for us to think about it this morning. How would people paint the portrait of your life? And the character of your heart? Therefore is the key word we're going to begin with this morning. In light of who Jesus is, in light of his costly obedience, really, this therefore kind of is in light of all that I've said to you already, Philippians, church of Jesus, in light of all those things, you must now think about your own obedience. So that's where we find ourselves this morning, Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 12, reading down through verse 18. Follow along if you would, and if you are able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word out of honor for his word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, But much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I want to begin this morning with a question, and maybe this is a question directed uh, at our kids, particularly our kids who sit in a classroom at school somewhere. I want to ask you a question What happens? when the teacher occasionally steps out of the room? Maybe for a second, maybe for a minute. Does anything ever happen when the teacher steps out of the room? Do things get maybe just a little bit rowdy? Maybe a little bit silly at times? Maybe this just doesn't happen anymore in our day and age with the protocols that are in place, but it certainly happened a lot when I was in school, the teacher would step out of the classroom for a few minutes, and in some cases, I remember, things would get crazy. The rowdy guys would start throwing stuff. People would start talking, messing with the teacher's stuff. It could be as orderly and quiet as it could be, but when the authority left, things changed. See, that's what came to mind when I thought here of Paul's very personal words to the church in Philippi, as he writes about the conduct of this church. He's already shown them that that he has this fatherly role, this fatherly care for them, right? He calls them my beloved, and it's clear here in this passage that they hold him in the highest regard. After all, this is Paul the Apostle. The one who was met by Christ on the road to is the former Saul, zealot, persecutor of Christians just like them, now imprisoned for that faith. And so we, we shouldn't be surprised, I don't think, that his personal presence has an effect. And he's already spoken about it in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, whether I come to see you or whether I am absent. Remember that phrase? wasn't just Paul's physical presence. In fact, we don't think Paul had a very commanding physical presence at all. It was Paul's apostolic authority, his authoritative guiding role in their lives. But Paul says, not just when I'm with you, but even when I'm not, especially when I'm not, do these things things. It's a very personal plea. But for us, as we, as we digest that here this morning in 2022 in Edmonds, Washington, we're not concerned about the presence of the Apostle Paul. But we should be concerned about the presence of the Lord in our obedience. You see, contrasting the beginning of verse 12, is the last phrase of verse 12. With fear and trembling. Not with fear and trembling of Paul, but fear and trembling of God. Now that applies to us. Paul says to the church of Philippi, whether I'm there or not, obey, do these things. But he says to Philippi and to us, whether I'm there or not, do these things with fear and trembling. What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean nervous insecurity or fear about what God might do to you if you don't do these things. That's not what Paul's talking about. But what it does mean is recognizing who this God is And living in the humility that that creates. Fear and trembling. Reverence and awe for the God who made us, for the God who has saved us. The psalmist says a similar thing in Psalm 2, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In other words, obey not because Paul says so or because Paul is there or not there, but because God says so and He is here. He is always here. The teacher is always in the room. We live every second, every day of our lives, quorum Deo, before the face of God in the presence of His glorious face. And so Paul this morning gives us two charges. One about work and one about witness. Two exhortations they call us to obey and that's how we're going to work our way through this passage this morning the first exhortation is simply what he says in verse 12 work out your salvation work out your salvation Now, for those of us in the church, those of us who have been gripped by the gospel of grace, those words work and salvation put together are are jarring, right? Wait a second, that 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 doesn't fit. That's not what we're about here. I thought salvation was a free gift. Now, Paul's saying work out our salvation. Paul told the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, right? It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul is not contradicting himself here. Actually, the word translated here as salvation isn't always used in the Scriptures to describe an initial conversion to Christ. In other words, being saved, as we think about being saved, receiving salvation. Now, sometimes the word is used in a broader sense. For instance, the consummation of our salvation at the end of all things in the book of Revelation. Or in this case here, the salvation that Paul is talking about is the process of us conforming to the image of Jesus, becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Strive to be more like Jesus. Live in such a way where you show what God has done already in your life. Sanctification is what we're talking here about here, not justification. And this is super important. We are not working for, but we are working at, or we are working out. Our salvation. I know many of you didn't grow up in Presbyterian circles, but our catechism is so helpful on this point. Westminster Shorter Catechism, questions 33 and 35. What is justification? Justification is an act. Of God's free grace, whereby he pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous only for the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us and received by faith alone. It's an act. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die under sin and to live. Unto righteousness. God has done the act of justifying. God is doing the work of sanctifying. So while the end of verse twelve gets some it gets some shock value, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The very next phrase at the beginning of verse 13, it throws a wet blanket on it. It's all of grace. Work out your salvation, but it's all of grace. This is God's work that we're ultimately talking about, not our effort alone. And here we see, as we see in other places in Scripture, the interplay, the seeming paradox between God's sovereign grace and our responsibility in the Christian life. It's not a contradiction. He is doing the renewing and transforming, but we must work it out. Let's talk about that for a moment. Remember, moms and dads, when your children were were little, at least some of you, some of you, your children are little, but you'll get to this point. I remember well teaching my kids to learn to ride a bike. And the first phrase that often came at a suggestion that we learn, that we go out and and learn, let's try to ride this bike. One of the first phrases that I often heard was, Daddy, I can't. Daddy, I can't. Daddy, I can't do it. Now, I had at least three possible ways that I could have responded to that phrase. Number one, oh, sure, you can do it. Just, just go do it. I bought you the bike. You do the rest. Go figure it out. I've done my part. That wouldn't have been particularly kind. It wouldn't have been particularly helpful. The fact of the matter is my kids couldn't do it without me. Or I could have responded, fine, I'll I'll just do it myself. Well, that doesn't make any sense. It's their bike. They need to get on it. Now, the only way to move forward was to say, let's do it together. So I get them on their bike, start pushing them forward, running with them the whole way, Holding them steady to enable them to balance. Now the difference between me teaching my kids to ride a bike and God's work of of sanctifying is that I eventually would stop pushing. Right? I'd stop holding their balance. I'd propel them down the street and wave words of encouragement until they crashed. But God never lets go. He continues to be not only the motivation to get on the bike, he continues to be the strength to keep us moving. He never stops showing us the way that we should go, and he consistently keeps us upright with his strong and steady hand. sure, we're doing the pedaling, but we dare not think it's us. Work out your salvation for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. This is an encouragement for us. This is an encouragement for our souls. You are not alone. You are never alone. God has given everything we need for life and godliness, and he hasn't just given it to us and said, go, run with it, do the best you can. I'll watch, I'll wave. When you crash, I'll come by. But no, he walks with us. He runs with us. He carries us through. And so what does this look like? Well, in one sense, it looks like the whole of the Christian life. But here in this context... As Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he's not thinking just individually, each of us as Christians. He's actually thinking more corporately. This is to be worked out in our life together, intentionally. As we grow together, as we mature together as disciples of the Lord Jesus. Much of the working out is done in this context. And so Paul puts a finer point on things in these next verses and that brings us to the second exhortation, which I've reworded slightly from the version you have, not just work out your salvation, but shine like the stars. Shine like the stars. I know you'll agree that these are dark times that we're living in. Maybe not the darkest of dark, but dark nonetheless. Cultural shifts have taken place in the last couple generations. Cultural shifts towards ungodliness that have been profound. Political polarization has never been greater, at least not in my lifetime. A pandemic has wreaked havoc on our world, both bodily with some and In many other ways, with all of us. And now the rumblings of another world war are being heard while thousands are killed and millions are displaced. We might call these times a crooked and twisted generation. And what's Paul's encouragement to those who live in a crooked and twisted generation. What's Paul's encouragement to the church concerning our response as the people of God? It's this, shine like lights in the world. Or as the NIV translates it, shine like stars in the universe. Of course, Paul is picking up Jesus' language and teaching in Matthew 5, where Jesus told his disciples, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. No doubt that's in the back of Paul's mind. But also, I think, Paul the Pharisee steeped in Old Testament Scripture is recalling the language used to describe the new age in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, where it says this, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Because we all know when the night is darkest, that's when... Stars shine the brightest. That's when the contrast is most profound. And so, what do, star, what do, what do stars do? What, do? what do lights do? Well, Paul doesn't unpack that, but we can for just a moment. Stars reveal, number one, right? Light reveals, it exposes. It reminds us how small we really are when we look into the night sky. Light brings truth to bear on a situation. And so, those living in the dark need to see their deeds in the light of God's Word and in the light of God's holiness. Shine like stars. Stars help navigate. Of course, this is less true in this day and age than it was in Paul's time, but it's true nonetheless. Those in the dark need direction. They need to be pointed to the way of life. Stars navigate. And stars bring beauty, don't they? Those fumbling in the dark are looking for life in all the wrong things. They. They want to tap into that which is good, that which is right, that which is true, and that which is beautiful. And stars say, look here. Here is where beauty is found. And so Paul says, shine like stars, brothers and sisters, and you do that by verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. That's Paul's way of saying, cling to the Gospel. Everything orbits around the gospel. There are lots of things that we can do and be about in the church, but what we must not lose is our very identity as proclaimers of a message, as proclaimers of good news, and those who, when we live our lives, embody that good news. But Paul gets even more specific in this passage, doesn't he? in terms of what that shining might look like. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We shine in part, we could say, through our contentment. Through our contentment. And when I hear this verse, I'm dating myself here, but I can't help but think back to my children's childhood and to the Steve Green ditty, do everything, do everything without complaining. There was even a music video, do everything without arguing, of a little boy grumbling as his parents, as his mom asked him to clear the table and wash the dishes it's a good verse for kids to memorize our kids used to sing that song back in the day as we sang it with them and while we certainly can apply this command to do everything without complaining or arguing to our individual lives to our individual reluctance to do household chores let me help you out parents you hear that kids you don't need to complain or grumble when mom asks you to do your chores or dad asks you to do something. But Paul in this context is specifically, specifically aiming at our, at our life together as God's people. In, in, in our lives together as we interact, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And maybe one of the things that comes to your mind when you hear this phrase is, really, Paul? Uh, I mean, all the things that you could focus on, of all the things that might rise to the top of the list of what it means to shine like stars in the universe, you, you bring up complaining and disputing? You see, I think in our minds... We we make this a minor thing. It's a respectable sin of sorts, isn't it? But it's actually not. It reveals a serious state of the soul. Born in pride, grumbling and arguing communicates that we deserve better. We know better. God, you don't see us. You don't see my plight. It's an expression of ingratitude toward God's providence in our lives. And hasn't this long been a struggle for God's people? Listen to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul recounts the people of Israel to the church at Corinth, and he says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Remember the wilderness? Remember the grumbling? Bread was freaking falling from heaven? And it wasn't enough? We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And so Paul says people of God get rid of that they'll know us by our love yes yes Jesus said that we've talked about that but they'll also know us by our contentment by our peace by the way that we deal with one another in adversity because you know what those living in darkness they will see what God offers they will see that God offers rest that God offers freedom from constant complaining. But how hard is this? It's hard. It's hard. When the cultural air that we breathe is one of entitlement and comfort and control and rights, everyone's a victim. Paul reminds us here that those with the past work of Jesus in view, remember the mountaintop, those with the present working of God's Spirit in them, He's never letting you go. And those with the future hope of the day of Christ before them, verse 16, those kind of people looking back, remembering who is with them, remembering is what, what is before them, those kind of people can shine like stars. Those kind of people can humble themselves with others. Those kind of people can be humble in our circumstances. Romans 12, this is worship, offering ourselves as living sacrifices, and indeed Paul closes this section with, a, with an acknowledgement that the struggle and the opposition that the Philippians are experiencing involves his own life. He says, just as the Old Testament sacrifices often had, had wine poured on top of them as a drink offering on, on top of the main offering, so Paul's life being poured out for, on behalf of this church On behalf of their lives, is in a sense the completion of a sacrifice given to the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, work out your salvation, encouraged and emboldened by the fact that God is at work in you. Repent of your ingratitude. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and to show it to you. That you might shine like stars as you receive adversity, whatever that may be, with thankfulness rather than with grumbling as you rest in the sovereign goodness and providence of God. In doing so, you, we, we point beyond us we point to the light of the world. The One who said, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. May God give us the grace. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You once again for Your Word. Father, these encouragements, these are exhortations come to our hearts. We confess our inability to walk in them. Our inability to walk in them perfectly. Maybe even our inability to to get going on these things. Oh, Holy Spirit, would You stir in our lives? Would You stir in us individually? Would You stir in us corporately? That as we work out our salvation, with fear and trembling, we would shine like stars pointing to the light of the world in a world of darkness that desperately needs such good news. O Holy Spirit, do Your work in and through Your Word, I ask. Through Jesus' name, amen.